evening we'll be looking at Genesis chapter 2, verses 15 through 17. Then the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to cultivate it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat from it you shall surely die. Let us pray. Father, we do again come humbly before you in your word and ask that your Holy Spirit might open our eyes and our ears, deepen our understanding of the meaning of these words that threaten and prophesy the entrance of death into the human race and establish the connection of disobedience to God and death. We pray, Father, that you would help us to bring to mind the scriptures that we have read, even as we read these verses and discuss them this evening, that you would have scripture shed light upon scripture, that the whole counsel of your most holy word and your revelation of yourself and of your salvation might become clearer in our minds and dearer in our hearts. Father, we ask that you would bless the reading, the preaching, the hearing, and the living of your word, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. 1965, 90-year-old French woman by the name of Jean Calmet did not have any heirs. She had outlived her husband, and one daughter, and one grandson. And so to uh, kind of tie up the loose ends, she sold her property to a young lawyer in the town on the provision that she would be granted a life estate, that she would be allowed to live in her home, and in fact, that she would receive a monthly stipend of 2,500 francs. And the lawyer continued to uh, pay that stipend until his death in 1995. Two years later, Jean Calmet died at 122 years of age. On her 100th birthday, somebody asked her about the arrangements, and her only comment was, well, sometimes business decisions don't turn out the way we intended. 122 years of age. The reason I bring that story up is that there was an article published in the AMA recently where some scientists have have determined that the maximum age to which man can now live is 115 years. In other words, that there will be no more Jean Calmet in the world, that 115 years is the limit. And the way they arrived at this was through empirical studies of when people die. And lo and behold, and this must have been a government grant, they discovered that very few people live to 122 years of age. Isn't that amazing? And so they have determined that 115 years, their conclusion is people die, therefore they must die. And really that is the conclusion of science with regard to death. People die, therefore they must die. But was man created to die? Was man created mortal? It seems to me that evolution has a problem with this. The theory of evolution is based on the increased survivability of the species. 
And those traits which, which improve the survivability of the species are those that are passed on to generation to generation become a permanent feature. Now this is the teaching of evolution of which I'm not an expert, but that seems to be the gist. And yet there has yet to develop a species that does not die. And in fact, problematic for evolutionists that there doesn't seem to be any correlation between longevity and the level of that species on the evolutionary scale. Some of the longest living creatures are reptiles. They outlive most mammals, I believe, and mammals outlive most birds. But if I remember the little diagrams that we were taught in, in grade school, mammals and birds evolved from reptiles. They seem to be going back. Seems not, it's not working. They can't explain life. We've talked about that before. The evolutionists cannot explain life, but they also can't explain death. All they can say is that because death happens, therefore death must happen. But that's called begging the question because they're assuming that which needs to be proven. Just because death happens does not make it necessary. About 50 years ago, a scientist by the name of Hayflick, I think I would have gotten an official change of name if my name was Hayflick, but he, he, he accomplished what every scientist wants to accomplish, and that is he got something named after him. It's called the Hayflick Limit. He determined that there is a limit to the number of divisions a cell can make before it no longer makes any more divisions. In other words, before it no longer reproduces itself, which is basically the mechanism of physical death. It is said that if we retain the healing properties that we possess at the age of nine, we would never die. But we do know that the older we get, the longer it takes for us to recover. Even our skin tends to retain scars that we would not have retained when we were children. And so this is called the Hayflick limit, and it's used once again to explain why death must be. But what it fails to explain is why cells do slow down and eventually stop. All science is able to do is explain the what, but not the why. And because the what is, people die, cells don't continue dividing forever, they conclude that death is a necessary and integral part of life. But that is not logical. Because under controlled environments in the laboratory, cells have been kept alive long past their Hayflick limit. So it seems that mortality has no natural physiological necessity. In other words, there, there's no inescapable logic that says that things must die. Mortality has become natural in the minds not only of scientists, but also, sadly, theologians, because it is universal. But just because it's universal, that does not mean it was original. And when we turn to the scriptures, we find that it was not original. But this isn't about science, and this isn't about uh, 
evolution. This is about the gospel. And so while it, it's sometimes amusing and then sometimes distressing to hear and to read what secular science is saying about life and death, it's, it's downright infuriating and, and deeply saddening to hear what passes within the church with regard to life and death. Liberal Christianity especially, but now more and more within branches of modern Christianity that, that have been considered evangelical. More and more theologians are accepting the scientific fact of human mortality as being essential to humanity. In other words, theologians are saying that we were created to die. Just like all animals. Many in the church have imbibed the teaching of evolution and the pronouncements of science and have said it's been proven, but it hasn't been proven. Statistics only account for what has happened. They don't prove anything. And when theologians in the church and pastors in the pulpit accept the essential characteristic of death as part of humanity, they lose an essential component of the gospel. They lose a component of God's redemptive plan without which the gospel loses all its meaning and all its power. Death is a critical component of God's redemptive plan. We who believe in the sovereignty of God and the providence of God do not believe that Adam's fall surprised God. We who understand that our Lord was slain from before the foundation of the world also understand that in some mysterious way death had its role and has its role to play in what God is doing. And if we say, no, 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 death is just natural, all living things will die, then what of the gospel? What of the death of Christ? What's so special of the death of Christ if as a human being he was to die anyhow? We understand, those of us who retain what the scripture teaches, that death is an intruder. Death is an enemy. That death came into the human race as a punishment. And that is often as far as Reformed theology takes the matter. Death as a punishment. And of course I want to talk about that some tonight, but I also want to talk about death as a manifestation of God's grace. An aspect of death that we don't normally think of. The graciousness of God in the provision of death. Here in this passage that I read earlier, God promises, and it doesn't really come across as a threat, as it is more of an inevitability, saying that in the day that you eat of the tree which I have forbidden, you shall surely die. The Hebrew in that passage is an emphatic and uh, some of our English translations, I think, render it better when they say, in the day that you eat from that tree, dying you shall die. I think we understand that this is a, an empty threat and a hollow promise if man was to die anyhow. 
This is something that liberal theology can't overcome in their acceptance of the essential characteristic of death as part of humanity, and that is, what, what's, what's with this? Well, typically what that leads to is simply treating all of Genesis and the creation account and the account of the fall as nothing more than Jewish mythology. If we deny the historicity and the literal reality of these stories, then we can pretty much say what we want, can't we? And that is the path that much of modern Christianity has taken. Not realizing that what they're doing with every single step is they are eviscerating the gospel. They're diluting the gospel. They are perverting the gospel. Until all they have left is something that is no longer a gospel. And we remember Paul's words in Galatians that if any man or angel should bring to you a gospel other than the one that I have brought, says Paul, let him be accursed. This is not a light matter in the mind of God. The treatment of the gospel and all of its facets and how it touches upon creation and the fall and the law and the coming of our Lord and His death and the resurrection. All of these things are incorporated into the gospel. If any one of them is perverted, the gospel itself is corrupted and is no longer the gospel, no longer the power of God into salvation. I need not be freed from death because death is simply natural. It's part of being human. No, it's not. Man was created in the image of God. Is death a characteristic of God? That's a very strange view of God, if it is. And so if dying is a natural characteristic of living, then what God says to Adam here is an empty threat. Some of us may have considered as we read the, the Genesis account that it was um, somewhat empty anyhow because Adam didn't die that day, did he? He lived for a long time after that, somewhat like 930 years before he died. And the men who we read of in, in Genesis 5 who lived before the flood, they were men who lived close to a thousand years. And so what does it mean when God said, dying you shall die? Well, this was a topic that we touched on in our most recent Thursday night class on biblical anthropology. And I'd like to summarize some of what we discussed for your consideration. It's not really the focus of our talk tonight, but, but still it forms a background because you may have questions when you read this passage and you see immediately in chapter 3 that Adam does indeed eat of that tree. His eyes are open and he sees that he is naked. He hides himself from God and yet he lives for a long time after that. Even though God said, in the day you eat thereof, you shall die. Well, the most reasonable solution to this dilemma is to realize that God is not just a body, or man is not just a body. That most have realized that man comprises at least a body and a soul. Although modern science seeks to deny that as well, even ancient philosophers recognize that man consists of more than just a, a package of chemicals. That he has a soul. 
But we also understand from Scripture that he possesses a spirit. And it appears that in the day that he ate of that tree, that he rebelled against God, essentially when he sinned, because this is called original sin, the fall of man, his spirit, which was given to him by the breath of God, died. He became in a condition that Paul describes to the Ephesians as being dead in his trespasses and sins, even though he continued to live physically, and even though his soul, his mind, his will, his emotions, his personality were still very much vibrant, yet he was immediately cut off from the life that is in God. And that is why we're told that his eyes were opened. And what is the first thing that he saw? He saw his flesh. Because with the death of his spirit, his soul was cut off from that intimate relationship that it had with the spirit and was now tethered alone to the body, to the flesh. And so we see as we read the book of Genesis, the degeneration of mankind, do we not? By the time we get to Genesis chapter 6, man is as bad as we can conceive him to be, so much so that God himself repents that he even made man. And he determines to wipe out the human race. This process of degeneration is in the soul. That man becomes a slave of his sensual desires. Again, Paul says, of, of most men, their God is their belly. Sensuality, the lusts of the flesh, the lusts of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life become the, the focus and the center, even the religion of fallen man. His spirit being dead. And finally, there is a separation of the soul and the body, which we understand as physical death. And we read of Adam, all the days that Adam lived were 930 years, and he died. But when you read the Bible accounts, we often read them with our current understanding of aging, do we not? I mean, how many of you, honestly, how many of you have read the account of Abraham and Sarah and have been bothered by the fact that at 75, 80, 85, 90 years old, Sarah could still walk the red carpet and turn heads? I mean, come on, be honest. <laughs> I don't know too many 90-year-olds that, you know, that are still good-looking. So we, we think, and that's what I'm trying to get at, we think in terms of our modern 7,000 years later, aging processes. But we understand that when Moses was taken, when he died in the hands of the Lord, he was still in full vigor. Caleb was older than my grandfather when he died, when he decided to take Jerusalem. In other words, aging then wasn't like aging now. And what I'm trying to get at is, I don't believe that the scripture is teaching us that even then, the physical death of these men was natural. Rather, it was the completion of the punishment that God had pronounced on Adam, but also a grace, a grace that God manifests to both 
his own, and to the world. And we're going to touch upon that in a moment. But we do understand that death is punishment. That's something that mankind, even in its modern liberal political vein, cannot escape. And that is every society that has ever existed on the earth has had capital punishment. They have recognized that there are some crimes that deserve death, the death of the perpetrator. And capital punishment is a human adaptation of divine justice. Again, Paul tells us the wages of sin is death. But the fact that capital punishment is nowhere and at no time applied to all crimes is a human adaptation of divine grace. Even the most barbarous societies that we can discover do not apply capital punishment to all offenses. And in this there is the echo of God's words or the words of the psalmist in Psalm 103. He has not dealt with us according to our sins nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. And so we recognize death as a judicial punishment. But I also want to establish that death is a natural consequence of sin. Because all sin is a movement away from God, who is himself life. And so when man sins, the immediate consequence of that sin is death. Death in our spirit. The ongoing consequence of that sin is death. The dying and degeneration of our soul. And the final consequence of that sin is death. The separation of the soul and the dissolution of the body. From dust you have come, to dust you shall return. So death is not natural in the sense that Adam was created to die. It is only natural in the sense that Adam fell and all of his descendants are born in that sin into which Adam introduced the race. And so now, of course, it is natural that we should decay, natural that we should die, because sin dwells in our members. But if we succumb to the modern truth, the modern view that death is an essential component of humanity, then we fail to understand the punishing aspect of death. We also fail to understand the gracious aspect of death. And that's the one I want to focus on as we conclude tonight. Death as grace. You probably haven't heard too much said on that topic. Because evangel evangelicals are, are agreed that death is a punishment. That death is the wage of sin. But we're not so unified in understanding that death is a form of grace. But listen later on in the chapter, chapter 3, excuse me, of Genesis. Adam and Eve have sinned. God has found them out. He has pronounced his judgment on the serpent, on the woman, and then on man. In verse 22, Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. And now, lest he stretch out his hand, and take also from the tree of life, and eat and live forever. 
and God doesn't finish the sentence. You ever notice that? He doesn't finish the sentence. In our hermeneutics class, I made the comment that the Bible doesn't always answer our questions. In fact, it doesn't often answer our questions. The Bible directs us in our thoughts, in seeking the answers to those questions. And so we're given this statement by God, unless lest Adam stretch out his hand and take also from the tree of life and live forever. And then he stops. And he does something. And we finish the sentence that God does not finish by understanding what it is that God stops to do. And that is to send Adam and Eve out from the garden and to place an angel with a flaming sword preventing Adam and Eve from re-entering the garden, preventing them from getting anywhere near the tree of life, lest they should stretch out their hand, take and eat and live forever in their sin. Grace immediately abounds where sin is found. And God graciously maintains man in his, and I think I'm making up a word, redemptibility, that he might be redeemed, that he might not live forever and be confirmed in his sin. That is an act of grace, that man should not live forever. And I think it's very interesting. I find pagan traditions and pagan myths and stories to be fascinating because they represent to us that vestige, and as I said earlier, that echo of the knowledge of God in fallen man. And you see common threads through the various pagan traditions of the ancient world, one of which was a search for immortality, the elixir of life, Shangri-La, the fountain of life, that man throughout the ages has considered it to be a goal to seek, and that is immortality. But God knows better. And he prevented that. Death is gracious, graciously preventing man from becoming immortal in sin and beyond the reach of redemption. This applies to individual men, but as we read through Genesis and we see how bad men became, so that by the time of Noah there was basically no one left on earth that still held the knowledge of God in truth except Noah. That man progressively became more and more wicked and violent. We see that God intervenes once again in Genesis chapter 6 verse 3. We read, Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever, because he also is flesh. Nevertheless, his days shall be 120 years. Now, there are a number of different interpretations of that passage, and we did look at that at length in our most recent study of Genesis. But the most reasonable one that we see historically in Scripture is that the longevity of man would not long survive the flood. 
but that men would live shorter and shorter lives until they would be in the 100s. And finally, we would read three score and ten, and if by strength, 80, four score is the average age of man. How is this gracious? What graciously limits the cumulative impact of sin that we read about in a society where men lived not decades, but centuries. I've often said that man is not like cheese or wine. We do not age well. In our sin, we become ever more wicked. And together in a society of that wickedness, it feeds upon itself and becomes so horrible that God intervenes and destroys those people. God said to Abraham, the time is not yet for you to inherit the land because the sin of the Amorite is not yet complete. Death in the individual, death in the societal sense are both gracious acts of God. Common grace, we might say, in that they place a limit upon what we can do in our sin, individually and together. Because the longer we live, we don't grow closer to God outside of Christ, but farther away. So God is gracious in the world, in causing men to die, but he is also gracious to his own. Those who love God, biblically speaking, those who have been called by God according to his purpose, those who have been granted the knowledge of God, cannot be happy in this world. It is the message of the Beatitudes, I believe, that our Lord spoke on in the Sermon on the Mount, that if we find our ultimate pleasure in this world and its praise and its rewards, then we have no part in God. In this world, Jesus said, you will have tribulation. You will have persecution. There is no way a blood-bought child of God can rejoice in this life. And so anyone's journey in this life must be a struggle. And God graciously ends that struggle and welcomes his own into his own presence. Psalm 116, verse 15. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his godly ones. Death is a manifestation of God's divine judgment, yes, but it is also a manifestation of his divine grace. And one of the most powerful elements of that grace is the centrality of death in the doctrine of redemption. Again, a common feature throughout history, throughout cultures, that whenever in history we find a people aware of deity, we find the practice of sacrifice. Do we not? Any society that understands that there is a God will also have as part of its religious practice, sacrifice. Those societies with the highest view of God's wrath 
will tend to sacrifice humans. But Judaism, instructed as it was by a direct revelation from God, has an exalted view of divine holiness as well as a deep awareness of human sin. And therefore we understand that offering up a human is an offense to God because humans are by birth corrupt. We are not fit sacrifices, are we? for a holy God. And so Judaism is instructed to offer animals, and those animals are to be without blemish. They are to be perfect in their physical condition. They are already innocent in their moral condition, for they are animals. But the sacrifices that were to be given were indications of an understanding that God is holy and that we are not. But God graciously makes provision for the sin of man through the death of a substitute. So death becomes central to God's doctrine of redemption. The passage that I think is one of the most powerful gospel passages in the Old Testament is Leviticus 17, verse 11. In my Bible, I have it highlighted and underlined. For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood by reason of the life that makes atonement. Death, our enemy, the intruder that comes in and destroys, becomes God's instrument for redemption. And we see the sovereign power of God who mysteriously ordained that death should come in for nothing happens apart from the will of God. And then takes this horrible specter of lifelessness, spiritual, soulish, and physical, and turns it to his purpose. Preserving man alive, preserving and ordaining and limiting the growth of human society throughout the ages, providing for the atonement of human sin through the death of innocent substitutes, all pointing to the death, the death of the perfect sacrifice, the death that would destroy sin and death forever. The death of death in the death of Christ. Let us pray. Father, we do ask that you would help us to understand all that you have revealed of yourself and of ourselves in your holy word. Help us to understand the meaning and the purpose of death that we might understand and comprehend the meaning and the purpose of the death of our Lord Jesus Christ. We pray, Father, that our minds would not be conformed to this world, that we would not accept and embrace the lie, but rather that we would be bound in our conscience and in our thoughts to your word, knowing that in them alone we find truth in the words of Scripture. Help us, Father, to 
meditate upon life and death set before us in the gospel. Help us daily to choose life. Help us, Father, to overcome the sins which so easily beset us. And help us, Father, to give glory and honor and praise to you alone, through Jesus Christ our Lord, in whose name we pray. Amen. Please stand this evening for the doxology from Paul's first epistle to Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 17. Now to the King eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen.